Good evening. Welcome. Uh, we are picking up in the middle of lesson eight on uh, the Bible, God's gracious word. We covered last time, I know it's been a couple of weeks, but we covered the, the first two ways um, that God reveals himself to people. We talked about the two kind of natural ways, the natural knowledge of God as it's revealed in creation um, and the natural knowledge of God as it is revealed in our conscience. We just kind of got into last time uh, the ultimate, the revealed knowledge that God gives to us in his word, which is why the Bible, the word of God, is so vitally important. Uh, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to be begin by looking at the top of page 55 and listen to, you know, so many people uh, have plenty of things to say about the Bible. They make claims about the Bible, um, but I think it's good for us to start with what claims does the Bible make about itself? Um, what claims does the Bible make about itself? So let's look at that first question, top of page 55 in your notes, if you're following along. And here is just kind of a slew of examples. These are kind of just blips of each of these verses, but hopefully you'll kind of get the point. Um, starting with Isaiah 1, uh, verse 2, listen to kind of each. The Lord has spoken, Jeremiah 10. Hear the word which the Lord speaks. Thus says the Lord, Ezekiel 1, the word of the Lord came expressly. Jonah 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Micah 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. Zechariah 1, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. 1 Corinthians 14, the things I write are commands of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, we say by the word of the Lord. 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit expressly says. What claim does the Bible make about itself? Yeah, this is God's word, right? Um, the, the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord. This is, this is why it's so important um, when people try and say, well, you know, maybe the Bible said this a long time ago, but, um, you know, uh, do you think God really meant or, or the people who wrote it really meant for us to hold on to it? The point of it is to say, this is not my word. This is not even Peter's word uh, or Paul's word or Moses's word. This is the word of God. And when it's the word of God, I don't have the authority to change it. Um, so the first claim that we see the Bible makes about itself is that this is God's word. How about the second batch? Similar, but it's adding something here. Exodus 24, Moses gave the words the Lord spoke. Deuteronomy 18, God put his words in the prophet's mouth. 2 Samuel 23, the Spirit's word was on my tongue. Isaiah 51, I, that is God, he's talking, put my words in your mouth. He says it again in Isaiah 59, my words which I put in your mouth, talking to Isaiah. Now talking to Jeremiah, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah 30, write all the words I have spoken. Zechariah 7, the words the Lord sent by his Spirit. And Matthew 10, given by the Spirit, what and how to speak. Claim? Yeah, and, and he gave that word. He gives that word to the, to the human authors of the Bible. And he says, record this. Write this down. 
Um, it's not just something I'm sharing with you in the, 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 the deep, dark thickness of the woods somewhere, um, but this is something that I want to be shared, something to be recorded, something to be written and spoken again and again. So the claim here is that it is God's word, but it is God's word which he gives to human authors to write and record. One last one. If both of these are true, then Psalm 19 says God's word is perfect, right, and true. Psalm 119, all God's precepts are right. John 17, God's word is truth. Titus 1, God who cannot lie manifested the word. Hebrews 6, it is impossible for God to lie. Revelation 21, the words written are true and faithful. Final claim we see in this. Yeah, this is the truth, right? Um, this is God's word. It's the word of God that he gave to human authors to write and record. And because of that, um, it is true. It is trustworthy. Um, so just kind of, a, I think, an interesting way to see these big claims that the Bible makes about itself. Or, or maybe you, you hear, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't make any claims about itself or doesn't make any claims to be the ultimate authority. And it's like, yeah, it does. That's exactly what it does. Um, the Bible is all sufficient for our spiritual needs. Um, all we need is God's word. Um, we get this from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Listen to this section. You've probably heard it before, but it's so important. Paul writes to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right, so a couple of questions about this section. According to verse 15, what does the Bible do? Yeah, that's really kind of the purpose of every book, right? It's to give you some sort of knowledge, some sort of wisdom on something, even if it's just the, the wisdom or knowledge of a story. Um, and so the Bible is the same way. The Bible is there to make you wise. Wise in what way? Wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It gives you, it shows you, it reveals to you Christ. And in revealing Christ... Um, this is what inspires faith in him, trust in him, hope in him, love for him. Um, all of these things come through the wisdom that is imparted through the word. According to verse 16, how has God given all the scriptures? Well, yeah. 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 
Good, yeah, um, both of those, right? So, so the word there um, to breathe. Th this is an interesting phrase, right? Because we gotta we gotta think about this for a second, um, because we've only got a couple examples in the Bible of of this happening: God breathing something. Um, the first example, of course, is all the way back in Genesis 1, right? God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. When God breathes into something, it becomes alive. Or when Jesus is standing among his disciples that first Easter evening, what does he do? John says Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, so when God breathes, the Spirit is imparted, and dead things become alive. Unbelievers become believers. People living and walking in darkness are brought into the light. Everything changes when God breathes into something. And here we have the comfort and encouragement of hearing that God breathes into his very scriptures. What a beautiful picture. So that when we hear and read elsewhere that the word of God is living and active, now we know why. It's not just because it's a compelling story. It's not just because it's good literature. It's because it is full of God's spirit who gives life. God breathed into his word and it becomes a living, active word. Um, what other uses has God given us to use his word for? What do we have here? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Um, and then finally, uh, what results when the Bible is faithfully used? The man of God, the, the person of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, Does that move from a spiritual? Yeah, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean... Um every good work they're they're physical works sure you know and uh, training i mean training can be any of these things could cross into the physical realm sure it's not just spiritual yeah, and, and Paul Paul likes those physical analogies too, doesn't he? The the race, the the training, the the beating your body and um, getting it in shape. Um, you know, Paul uses that too, the 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 physical analogy, and easily translates it into the spiritual. So yeah, same thing here. Yeah, yeah, those good works, and and ultimately, right? What are those good works he's talking about? This is something we're going to talk about in an upcoming lesson. This is vocation, right? This is this is making your faith which is an invisible thing in your heart, in your soul, and it makes it now a visible thing. This is the fruit of your faith, right? This is the evidence of the life that is within you. Yeah, good. All right, a couple other statements uh, or descriptions of the Bible. Top of page 56, 
The Bible is also authoritative. Um, it has authority. A couple of passages that are there, uh, and what we mean by that, the word is authoritative. We mean that the word alone creates, sustains, and guides faith. A couple of passages here, Matthew 24, verse 35. Jesus says, my words will never pass away. Luke 4, Jesus' command, uh, a man is freed from an evil spirit. John 10, the scriptures cannot be broken. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That is the word. 2 Timothy, we just read this one, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for all those various things. 2 Peter 1 for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, the word does all of these things. It is powerful. Um, it creates, sustains, and guides faith because this is why God gives it. Um, this is the power, the authority that it has. The Bible is clear. And, and I don't mean clear in the sense that, um, you know, people will argue, well, if the word was so clear, then why are there so many different translations or interpretations? What I simply mean by it is God doesn't leave us up to our own devices to understand or interpret it. The word explains itself. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. Um, all of those things, the commands of the Lord are radiant. Matthew 11, Jesus prays, I, I, uh, I praise you, Father, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Um, it's, it's clear, little children get it. Um, and, and, and this idea that God um, hides it from the wise and learned it doesn't mean that he's actively trying to prevent someone from understanding or grasping his word but it's almost to the point where it's so simple that you can become too smart for it you, you think it's beneath you you think it's too simple um that that god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life that's too easy that's too easy you can outsmart it but a child looks at that and rejoices in the God who loves him. Um, the word is clear. Jesus tells us what the point of them all is. John 5, these are the scriptures that testify about me. All of scripture points to Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, again, how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then 2 Peter 1. Um, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. This is Peter saying, we have it more certain because we have the ultimate fulfillment of the word. The word of the prophets pointed ahead, tried to paint a picture of Jesus. And yet Peter says, we have Jesus. We have the fulfillment, the conclusion of God's word more certain because we have seen him with our own eyes. Finally, the Bible is effective. It accomplishes that which it commands. This is so important. Um, 
Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, um, this is, uh, uh, of course, in the Old Testament with Moses. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It sustains. Isaiah 55, the Lord says, the word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Um, the word is effective. It accomplishes things. John 6, the words I have spoken are spirit and they are life, Jesus says. Romans 10, faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word of Christ. Um, it is the message, the word of God, which works this faith. Faith comes from hearing the word. 2 Corinthians 4, God said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Just as God created the light, the physical light, um, he also made the light of God's word, the light of the gospel shine in our hearts um, through the knowledge of God, which we see clearly in Jesus Christ. James 1, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. The word which can save you. It is effective. Peter writes, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, enduring word of God. Um, the word accomplishes that which it commands. This is an amazing thing, right? So often you'll hear people, right? Jesus will be talking or one of the apostles and they'll say something like, repent. And, it, and it's viewed as, well, this is what the person has to do. Or believe. And then you kind of just sit back and go, all right, well, we have to wait for the person to believe. No, it is that command. It is that word which accomplishes the very thing it commands. The command to repent from the word of God inspires and instills in someone a desire to repent the word believe right that command that invitation inspires moves someone to faith because as the lord says the word will not return to me empty but will accomplish what i desire um so the word of god it actually accomplishes that which it commands it is effective the word of god does stuff um there's a couple in there that i didn't reference um, that I note there in your notes from the book of Acts, and each of those is the word of the Lord continued to spread. Um, this is the beauty of God's word. It grows, right? It moves. It's a living thing. It's an effective word. Then finally, the, the last section we're going to kind of look at on this is, is what uh, you mentioned, Mitzi. The Bible is verbally inspired. What do we mean by that? This is important to understand. Um. Second Peter chapter one says this for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is important to remember that this wasn't, you know, just Moses sitting down and saying, you know what, I, I think I think people would get some value out of these commandments. I'm going to write them down. Um, it wasn't just Matthew saying, you know, I think I've heard enough about this Jesus guy that I should probably write his story down and call it a gospel. Um, no, but the word carried along there sort of has the picture of a sailboat. Um, a sailboat cannot move, does not move on its own. 
It can only go as the wind carries it. And so that is the picture that Peter uses here for the inspired authors of scripture. They write as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And, and how fitting that the word wind and breath and spirit are all the same. Right? Um, so kind of a fitting thing. Um, wonderful passage, Second Peter. First Corinthians 2. Did you say something, Christy? No, I did not. Okay. Oh, it was my watch. That's what it was. Sorry. It's Apple um, spying on me. All right, here we go. First Corinthians 2. Uh, Paul writes, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Now, this might seem like, uh, you know, not a very big deal, but I, I think it is that Paul writes here. Um, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Um, and, and, and the picture there is not just that the Spirit said, Paul, I want you to write something on justification. Kind of go with it wherever you want. I'll give you kind of the topic. I'll give you the general idea. But you kind of just fill in the blank. No, Paul says we were actually given words, plural. Words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Another passage that we've already looked at a couple of times, this idea of all Scripture is God-breathed, and, and Mitzi referenced that word inspired. Um, that really is the, the, the word there. Um, spirare is, is the word to breathe inspirare is the word to breathe into to inspire that's where that comes from um you know it's kind of become sort of a a very i don't know uh i don't you you, you hear like musicians say this right i was just inspired to write these words and it's like yeah but that could come from like a you know a bad burrito that could come from, you know, any kind of weird thing, some psychedelic drug. Um, but this is not what we're talking about. Um, to, to breathe into these human authors, these words of God um, are inspired in this sense that God breathes into them his spirit who gives them the words to write. And because of that, um, Proverbs 30 again, says, for every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Um, so here's kind of the, one of the ways that we describe, what does this mean? If the Bible is verbally inspired, we say that the Bible is inerrant. One of the big words that we use. It is without error um, because it is God's word. And so here's kind of the definition that we use for uh, verbal inspiration. Two points. God miraculously gave, 
the writers of the Bible, the very thoughts and words he wanted them to record. So on the one hand, the prophets and apostles who wrote the Bible used their own writing styles, personal knowledge, study, investigation. Um, uh, Luke, for example, um, you know, makes a point of, of, of saying this um, as he begins um, his, his gospel. Um, that he studied, that he looked into these things. Um, and, and you can tell this, maybe you can tell this in English. Right? It's way easier in the original languages. You can tell the difference from one book to the next, the different writing style. Just like you, you might have your favorite author. And, and you could tell without any um, probably uh, title or author name on it. If you started reading a story by your favorite author, you just know how they write. Um, and this is this is something that we can see in the words of scripture as well. God uses those. They don't become robots. They don't become, you know, um, kind of a shell of themselves. And then they snap out of it and they go, whoa, what did I just write? No, it's, it's God using their own experiences, their own personalities. Um, and so, for example, you know, there's a couple of things that we can see, like Luke, for example, I always use this example. Luke is uh, a doctor by trade. And so Luke records more miraculous healings than any of the other gospels, because as a doctor, he knows <laughs> this is not the way things work. You don't spit in and make some mud and put it on somebody's eyes. And then they the blind people begin to see that's not a medical practice. That's not something we're taught because um, it doesn't work. It's a miracle. On the other hand, God miraculously guided the process so that we have the words and the message he wants us to have. The words? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yes. Can you tell me what Mitzi is saying? I cannot hear her. She she was just simply saying um, this is this uh, means that the, the the word of God is also uh, gives life, right? Um, because if it's a living thing, it gives life, which is interesting. This this is um, a biological thing as well, right? Um, we looked at that in our Sunday morning class, the the law of biogenesis that the li life can only come from life, and so spiritual life can only come from life. Um, and the word of God is living and active. Just a couple words on, on translations. Um, not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I think it is good just to cut, kind of touch uh, base on a couple of these. Throughout history, God in his goodness and wisdom has seen to it that his word is available to people, no matter their culture or language, through Bible translations. The Bible has been translated into thousands of languages. Some significant examples are uh, the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible, still the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church, um, around 400 AD by Jerome. Um, Luther's German Bible in 1534, it was not the first German translation of the Bible, um, but it, of course, was the most famous one, and that is because um, this is around the same time that the Gutenberg printing press 
um, was invented. And so it was something that was massively produced and, and, and spread throughout Germany. Um, and in fact was used um, to, to teach German um, uh, grammar and literature um, to people in uh, like children in school and things like that. So well-written. Same thing for the King James version. <laughs> um, the King James version was not the first English translation of the Bible, but obviously is the most well-known one. Um, 1611 is when that was finished and also again was used um, to teach English um, to, to children, to, to non-native speakers, things like that. And then finally, the, the, the number one English selling, uh, uh, number one selling English translation of the Bible is the New International Version. A couple different translations it's gone through. 1978 was the first one. Um, it quickly was revised and updated in 1984. That one lasted quite a while. It is still the Bible that I use. Um, it's the Bible that I grew up with. Um, so, it, for example, it is um, 99 times out of 100 the 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 version of the uh, the Bible that you're going to have on Sunday morning in our worship services, just because that's that's the Bible that I use. Um, it updated in 20, 2011. I think it made a couple of improvements in that update, but it also made some unfortunate updates and changes um, in some gender neutral language and um, and uh, took away some of, I think, the Old Testament um, prophecies of Jesus, kind of making them more generic. Um, so I think overall, probably not a good upgrade, which is why I haven't really moved to using it. Um, but those are probably four of the bigger translations of the Bible. The question is, um, can they be trusted? Right. This is always kind of the question. Can the translations be trusted? Um, and I think there's a couple of passages um, that you've got there in your notes that uh, are good reminders for us. Um, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus says in Matthew 5, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then finally, um, Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Here, here is the reason why I trust um, the, 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 the translation, the, the, the Bible is still around, the word can still be trusted. It's not because I trust translations. It's not because I trust the people who did the translating. It's because I trust the promise that God has made that his word will not disappear. Um, now, I think that we can say things like there are better, and I already have, there are better translations and there are weaker translations. And I think the two things that you're constantly looking for in a translation is number one, you want to find a translation that is faithful to the original language. Um, and, and there's always going to be a challenge in doing that, right? If you've ever studied a foreign language or you speak a foreign language, you know that from one language to the next, things are not always translatable, right? Um, you know, you'll, you'll have people say, well, there, there just isn't a way to say that in Spanish, 
or German, right? You and I have a way of saying it in English, but there really isn't kind of a direct, exact way to express it in another language. Um, so there's going to be some things that are a little different. We understand that. Um, but uh, we still want to find something that, that strives as its goal when it comes to translations to be faithful to the word of God, to communicate what is recorded in the original languages, not the slant or interpretation um, of, a, of an individual author or religion. The second thing we want to find is uh, readability. Something that, that, that is a faithful translation, but also does a good job of communicating the language in which it's written. Um, which is why I'm, I'm not a big pusher of the King James Version. Um, it just isn't the way we talk. It's just challenging. I, I, I told you guys, I, you know, the, the first uh, chunk of my ministry was served in Salt Lake City and the, um, the Mormon kind of Joseph Smith edition of the Bible uses the King James. And I don't know how many Mormons I, I met who just gave up on reading the Bible because they just couldn't understand the old English language. Um, and so it is beautiful. I, I think the King James Version might be arguably the greatest piece of English literature and poetry that has ever been recorded. Um, but I'm not going to hand that Bible to somebody who's never read the Bible um, in 2022 and say, here you go. Um, this will explain everything. Um, I, I think there are ways when we can understand and recognize that the way in which we communicate today, right, this, this is the way um, that, that we speak. And so we can communicate the word, the word of God in a similar fashion. Um, so I think when you find those kind of two things, you can find a good balance right? You're, there are, for example, there is a, a translation called the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. Um, and it is the translation of the Bible that we would use in class if we didn't do our translation homework in the New Testament or Old Testament. Because what it does is it goes word for word in the Greek and Hebrew in the same order, but translates it into English. And if you can imagine, it sounds like an absolute wooden train wreck um, when you try and read those words in the order that Hebrew has them or Greek has them. You know, so often the the verb is at the very end of the phrase or the subject, uh, you know, is is, uh, you know, uh, at the is the very first word. Um, things like that sometimes can just be confusing. So. While I would say it's very faithful to the original language, obviously it's just a word-for-word -word translation. Um, it's 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 frustrating to read and doesn't sound anything like literature. It sounds like translation homework. Um, so those would just kind of be a couple of examples. Um, I, I I think some people have kind of mentioned um, what was the what's the one that's really kind of generic the. Um, uses way too much freedom, um, turns the Bible into just a kind of a glorified story. Um, what's the translation called? The, oh, I can't think of it. Um, it no, it's not the story. There's a translation that basically just kind of takes like the general idea of a paragraph and rewrites it itself and just loses everything of the original language. So 
So those are kind of the two things I say, I, I encourage people, you wanna look for those two things, faithful to the original language and then also um, readable in the, in the language that it is translated. Um, again, this idea, can they be trusted? I think this is something that is important to see. And this I got from, if you remember last week or last time we had class, we ended with um, um, the, the movie that I encouraged everyone to watch, The Bible on Trial. I included the link in, uh, in the last class too. So it's there in the, uh, the video description on our YouTube channel. I got this from, from that movie that kind of just gives you an example of how reliable the Bible is. Now, remember, the, the way that we judge works of antiquity is different from the way that we judge other things, right? So, for example, I think the, the example that is used in the movie is, you know, how do we know that George Washington crossed the Delaware? Well, you have to go by, you know, were people there who were eyewitnesses of the event? And the people who wrote down the account of Washington crossing the Delaware, were they people who either A, were there and were eyewitnesses of the event, or are they people who were close associates with eyewitnesses? So you were an eyewitness, but I wasn't. But before I wrote my story, I talked to you because I know you were there. Tell me what you saw. Um, and so we're looking for the proximity of people to the events and then what and, and, and how recent were the records, the written records of those events? How close are they to the actual events themselves? So for example, um, some pretty common required reading um, in, uh, you know, on university campuses, maybe even high school, you've got like something like Caesar's Gallic Wars, pretty important work of history. Um, it was written uh, between 58 and 50 BC. And yet the earliest copy we have of that um, dates to 900 AD, means that the time that spanned between when it was originally written and the earliest copy or manuscript that we have is a thousand years. And how many copies of that or pieces of copies of that do we have? We have 10, okay? So a thousand years and 10 copies. You move on to Thucydides, the, his histories, another very important work. Um, those were originally written 480 to 425 BC. Earliest copy is also 900 AD. Time span is 1300 years, and we only have eight copies. Plato, um, um, 427 BC to 347. Again, earliest copy, 900, 1300 years, seven copies. Um, Tacitus, 100 AD. Earliest copy, 1100, 1000 years, 10 copies. You kind of get like, you, you, like, these are some of the most recognizable um, and important works of history that uh, are used for ancient history, for philosophy, um, for, for world history, things like that. Homer's Iliad, right? Written in 850 BC, the earliest copy, 400 BC, one of the, one of the oldest manuscripts we have around. Um, number of copies, 643, pretty reliable, right? That's about as close as we can get 
when it comes to a work of antiquity. Now look at the Bible. We've got the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, originally written between 60 and 90 AD. The earliest copies we have date to 200 to 325 AD, 140 to 265 years, half the distance of the next closest one, and we've got over 15,000 copies. Well, they come up with a copy that is maybe only 70 years, and they say this is what we're going to accept. They don't know whether that's actually a better copy, or they just know that it's closer to the actual time. Sure, and so I don't understand why they suddenly jump on these copies that they don't know whether they're accurate. Yeah, yeah. So there's a number of things. Um, there's a number of things uh, Mitzi is kind of acting, asking about when they find um, other copies, older copies, you know, how do they kind of determine, you know, which one is more reliable? There's a couple things that they use. Number one, older is, is, is typically going to be given more credibility. Unless, unless, you've got a hundred copies that are in agreement and the one copy that is different. Then it doesn't matter how much older the one copy is, they're gonna go with the consensus of the majority. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll show you my, uh, my, my Greek New Testament, for example. And on the bottom of every page, it, it gives you all of the references to different manuscripts and different copies um, and there are definitely areas where manuscripts were found, um, you know, ones that were considered more reliable. Those that were, for example, found in Alexandria, right? Those are given pretty high credibility because that library that was there, that was kind of the point and purpose of it was to preserve documents like that. Um, but so, so there's, always, there's always kind of a number of different elements um, that people use. But here's the nice thing. When you're reading through that, that Greek New Testament, all of those things are documented. It's not as though like somebody else has made the decision that here's the ultimate final say. Um, all of the rest of those copies and documents are there. Here's, here's the greatest point though. When we talk about variations within translations, I think people automatically think, well, there you go, that's unreliable, right? Because how do you know which one to trust and which one to rely? But here's the reality. When we're talking about variations, not a single one of those variations would change a single doctrine of the Bible in the slightest. So the variations we're talking about would be like, is this supposed to be third person singular or third person plural? Was Paul referring to one person or to a group of people? It's like, well, ultimately that doesn't really matter, I guess. It's not like it would change the doctrine of justification or the doctrine of verbal inspiration, right? So, so I think there's a, there's a great source of encouragement there to know that even in those variations, um, it's not as though, well, if we went with this variation, we would be Trinitarian. And if we went with this variation, well, we would just believe in one God, Yahweh. Um, and we've kind of just sided with this one because, you know, no, um, they're, they're much more minute things. 
um, those variations. So, because in my lifetime, we've gone from saying Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, and not using Jehovah anymore, and all these different things. I just don't understand why. Sure. It's, it, I mean, they've used them for 2,000 years, and all of a sudden, right after we've gone through this culture shock, everything has changed in the Bible, also. Yeah. It's just, and I think, um, you know, why the change of some of those words, I, I think the reasoning for that, probably a big change was from the, tra the transition from the, the King James to the, to the NIV. I think that probably shifted a lot of that. Um, and, and I think, you know, um, nothing wrong with using Holy Ghost, but I, you know, if, if I would use the word ghost with my kids, they'd have a very specific picture in mind. Um, and and yet, you know, spirit is something they're not necessarily going to understand. Either way, I'm going to have to teach it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and the name for the names for gods, um, you know, I think this is one of the cool things about keeping, you know, some of the ancient hymnody that we have because those words are still there, right? Um, as far as Jehovah goes, I always thought that they used Jehovah because they considered the sacred test too sacred to say. And I, so I don't know how, it, has that changed or not? No, um, Jehovah is actually, um, that's actually kind of the, the transliterated name of the tetragram um, with the vowels. Yeah, um, it, it's sort of the, you know, um, Yahweh is similar, um, but Jehovah is um, Ye Yehovah is the is the yeah the the lord in capital letters um so actually the word that they would use when they got to that was adonai they wouldn't say jehovah they wouldn't say yahweh they would say adonai which is the 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 lesser name for lord um like a a word that um you know you would use to describe like a master like lord you know, Smith, right? Um, Adonai is the word that's used for that. So they wouldn't read the word Jehovah. They wouldn't use the word Yahweh. They would say Adonai. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, languages change. And, and I think, you know, the way we communicate and teach things um, does as well, as long as we're not teaching substance, substance, you know, the substance any different. Um, I think there are probably you know, ways that we, we teach God that um, in some ways are just as beautiful and maybe maybe even more clear um, these days, just to, to other pictures that we can use, like more modern pictures that people will resonate with. I wonder sometimes when you talk about like, you know, burning a sacrifice or making a sacrifice, we know nothing about that, right? Um, when you use the picture of um, Jesus is the good shepherd. We know nothing like what the life of a shepherd is like, right? So I think sometimes, you know, using pictures that people understand, that's what Jesus was doing, right? He was using everyday pictures that people would get. The analogy of a farmer sowing his seed. Um, no, we don't change the substance, but I think if there are ways that we can communicate, this this is what the word of God is like. This is this is who Jesus is like. Um I think that can be beneficial sometimes, um, but still ought not remove from us the responsibility to teach the word of God itself, right?
Um, and I think that's, again, kind of one of my frustrations with when, when people go like full blown and change the total, you know, feeling and, and substance of their worship because, well, you know, this is old fashioned and it's like, well, yeah, but teach it to people and see what happens. Don't just throw it out and change it. Um, and I think that's kind of what you're saying with the, with the Bible too. I mean, for 2000 years, we've been able to teach this to people and all of a sudden we can't, there's no way that you can take a shepherd and turn it into a computer operator. No, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Which is why we still have good shepherd Sunday, you know, an example of that. Right. I mean, we're holding on to those things. So not a problem. Um, so a couple of passages that we looked at. I think helpful verses. Um, just some Bible facts. Uh, I just want to put these in front of you so you, you know these. Number of books, Old Testament 39, New Testament 27. Um, I, an easy way to remember this if, if you struggle with just remembering that. Old Testament, uh, old three letters, Testament, nine letters. Um, even though I, I wrote them in the wrong order there. <laughs> um, there's still nine letters there for Testament um 39 new testament 7 3 times 9 27 easy way to remember that approximate dates now this is for uh the 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 writing of the old testament approximately four, uh, 1500 to 430 bc is when the old testament was written new testament 45 to 90 ad the authors of the old testament were prophets priests and kings largely the New Testament were disciples, apostles, and students of apostles. Language, Hebrew and Aramaic for the Old Testament, primarily Hebrew. Um, Aramaic, uh, Book of Daniel has some of that, for example. Um, New Testament is Greek, Koine Greek, to be specific. Purpose or main message is to point ahead to Christ. The Messiah is coming. And then the New Testament is to point to Jesus and say, he's here. This is him. Okay. I'll let you take a look, but I really would encourage you to read through a biblical interpretation. I've got some notes there, um, principles to practice, um, you know, how to read the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, um, things like that. Some, some, some good beneficial rules to follow as you're reading through scripture and interpreting them. Um, and then also some pitfalls to avoid when it comes to translating or interpreting um, or kind of dissecting scripture, um, things to avoid um, that other other uh, uh, people have done in history, even some Christians, unfortunately, um, which really oftentimes lessen or cheapen or kind of cloud the word of God. So we want to avoid doing that. All right. Um, summary, top of page 58. The Bible is God's very own message to us. This is a miracle that is known as verbal inspiration, which means that God miraculously breathed into the Bible's writers all of the thoughts and words that he wanted them to record. Because of this miracle, we know that the Bible is entirely God's word and is completely without error and reliable for all people of all times. Primary purpose of the Bible is to teach us about Jesus so that we might believe that we are saved purely through God's grace the Bible is the only book that can give us the correct answer to life's biggest questions. All right. What questions do you have? All right.
Well, we'll call that a night. We'll call that lesson eight. And uh, we'll be back next week. And we will get into lesson nine on baptism. Look forward to it. We'll see you then. Have a good night. <laughs>